Well, good morning, church. I am really glad to see you all today. Um, how many of you are still thinking about a $3 bit of God? <laughs> yeah, that one's going to need a cup of coffee in about an hour to think about, and probably my journal too. So, um, yeah, good one. Last week, um, we hit the pause button on our series in Acts, if you'll recall. Um, beginning of every year, I preach a single sermon about checking in with God and asking him about a theme or something that he wants to work on in your life. And so we talked about this uh, last week because we did a mid-year check-in. And I always find that it's a good thing to do to just say, hey, remember that thing you did back in January? <laughs> it might be a great idea to, to uh, check in with God on that one again. And uh, so we, we kind of paused. And at the same time, um, I did something else. I introduced uh, discipleship, I, I'll call it a model, I don't have a better word for it, um, <clears throat> and you're going to see more and more of this uh, in the weeks to come, because this has so gripped our staff, um, just how we're trying to pursue Jesus ourselves, and uh, trying to remind us that even though we have a certain you know, position within the church, we're disciples first. That's what we are, we're disciples first and foremost. Everything else is just an assignment, and we're given this kind of calling. And um, if you, if you missed it, uh, you'll, you'll be able to see it online pretty soon. And we also have the resources available for you. In fact, they're sitting on the, one of the back tables over here. And I'd be happy to connect you with those um, after service if you, if you want to see it and um, walk through it together. That would be great. Um, what, what's going to happen today, though, is we're going to go back into the book of Acts and we're going to actually see where this thing works out. Um, we're going to apply this model to something that we're seeing in the text itself. Now, here's the really cool part. I didn't know that was going to happen. Yeah, right? It was one of those things where you kind of, now I open the text and it's like, I can't not see this. I really see this, this thing oh, you know, all over the place. And so for me, um, it, it was great because I need to remind myself, oh yeah, this actually works out in real life and in real time. And so we're going to talk about this a little bit more. So we're going to jump back into the book of Acts. And uh, let me um, remind you that the book is entitled The Acts of the Apostles. But the, the truth of the matter is it's really the Acts of the Holy Spirit and the, the apostles are kind of along for the ride. Hanging on for dear life sometimes, I think. And um, we've covered the first basically five books. And so in chapter, uh, uh, sorry, first five chapters, in chapter one, Jesus uh, has risen from the dead. He's meeting with his disciples, and he says, I want you to wait in Jerusalem until you receive power from on high. And the more I think about this, the more I realize how much courage that actually took on the part of the disciples. Because remember, Jesus had just been crucified. That had to have been uncomfortable. Because if you're out in the street and somebody recognized you as a disciple or a follower of Jesus in some way, shape, or form, that... What's going to come down on you? I mean, that's, that's what would go through my head. I don't know about anybody else, but wait for power. Stay in the city, wait for power. That's what chapter one. Chapter two, that power falls in a big way. Would you agree? Yeah. Some big things happen. And then in chapter three, there's this event that takes place. Peter and John, who for all practical purposes are probably the oldest of Jesus' disciples and the youngest, Peter the oldest, John the youngest, are walking through the temple and they have the opportunity to heal a lame man. And for some reason, this sets off a chain of events. 
And so there's some conflict in chapter 4 with the temple leaders. Now, this is nothing new for them. Jesus has been mixing it up with Pharisees and Sadducees and all the rest most of his life, at least as we read it in the text. And so this is happening again, but it's different this time. Yes, Jesus had been crucified, but now they had had some favor with all of the people. And now the temple leaders are kind of questioning this new kind of sect that seems to be arising out of Judaism. And then in chapter 5, there's this really uncomfortable story about Ananias and Sapphira. And they're both killed. And the issue at its heart is about hypocrisy. And we talked about that a couple weeks ago. I have to tell you, I still don't like that story at all. I think it's instructive. I don't like it. It makes me uncomfortable. And so today I'm going to invite you to join me in Acts chapter 6. Actually, we're going to cover both 6 and 7 today because the stories belong together. We're going to cover it. We're going to kind of blow through certain parts of it. We're going to deal with bits and pieces. But um, as we sprint through this, hopefully I'm going to point a couple of things out, and then I want to offer some thoughts um, on the story at the end. So if you have a Bible or if you have a Bible app, go ahead and punch it in. We're in Acts chapter 6. I'm going to be beginning with verse number 1. And here it is on the screen. Uh, I won't have them all on the screen, but I have this one. In those days, when the number of disciples was increasing, the Hellenistic Jews, or the Greek-speaking Jews, among them complained against the Hebraic Jews, the Hebrew-speaking Jews, because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them. Okay, now let's talk about what's going on here. First of all, we, the, the passage begins with the phrase, in those days. And so Luke is signaling to us this is a brand new story. This is a literary device that he occasionally employs. And so this is supposed to be separate from the previous story. Brand new story that's coming up. <clears throat> and then we noticed that there's, uh, there's a little, little aggravation going on, right? They're distributing food. Some people are getting some of the food. Others are not getting, and eh, they're starting to complain. So what we have here, if we can call it this, is growing pains. You've got an, uh, a young church. It's only, at this point, probably a few months old. And there's some issues here. And so there's some growing pains. And so what do the disciples, what do, the disciples do here? They're like, look, we, we've got a certain set of responsibilities. We are uniquely positioned to do this and this and not necessarily that. This makes sense. And so what they do is they offer a, a possible solution. Why don't you choose seven that you think, to the assembly, you think actually can do this job. They're full of the Spirit and with wisdom. Why? So that people don't get missed. Interesting. The wisdom and full of the Spirit, so they have the discernment to see what's actually happening. And so there's a certain amount of systems that are being installed here at this point, which is very common within an organization, and of course leaders, but the leaders have a criteria. 
Wisdom and full of the Spirit. Very interesting. Okay? So, as this thing goes on, we are actually um, introduced. We're actually introduced to them. Let me go ahead and read a little bit more from this. Choose seven from among you who are known to be full of the Spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and uh, will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the Word. This proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. Also Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, not Pumbaa, just saying, Parmenas, and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. They presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. Another interesting little point. So the word of God spread, the number of disciples in Jerusalem increased uh, rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. Oh, now wait a second. Didn't we just have some conflict with some of those folks? Yep. Something's happening here. And so we're introduced to this group of seven men. The first two are the most important, Stephen and Philip, and they both get longer stories within Luke's work. And we're going to read about Stephen here in a second. Next week we're going to cover Philip, at least in part. So they're prayed and they're laying on hands. And what's the result in chapter 7, or in verse 7? There's growth. There's growth that happens out of this. They're following the Holy Spirit trying to make sure that people who follow the Spirit are overseeing these types of ministries and we see growth. Okay, so now, chapter 6, verses 8 and 9, I want you to see this. Now Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, remember, just a couple verses ago we heard about Stephen before. So obviously he's got, he's got some street cred here because it keeps coming up over and over again that he is full of God's grace and God's power. Anyway, uh, Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, performed great wonders and signs among the people. Opposition arose, however, from members of the synagogue, synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the provinces of Cilicia uh, and Asia, who began to argue with Stephen. Now, we need to hit the pause button right here because this is very interesting. Um, this synagogue at the time is kind of where all the expats showed up. So if you've got, um, my best friend lives in, uh, lived in Egypt for a number of years and he attended a particular church. Interestingly enough, it was a church that his grandfather founded back in the 40s. And I was asking him about the church and he says, it's mostly full of foreigners expats who are in Egypt working because they have an English service and it's Christian and it's been there for a long time and has a reputation. So this is not an uncommon thing to happen in, in, in the, the Middle East and elsewhere. Um, I know that in Tulsa there's a Korean Baptist church, for instance, and there's a Vietnamese church. You've seen some of these as well. But the point is, is that you get a group of people who are coming from other parts of the world and they're gathering together to, to worship together. And so this synagogue of the freedmen served that function in Jerusalem. Does it make sense? Okay. This becomes very important a little later on in the story. We'll see this. <clears throat> so um, apparently Stephen was doing something that they all didn't like. And it, and it says he, um, he began to argue with them. Now the wording here, 
lends itself um, to interpret that is that it was a formal debate. And he stood up and he kind of mixed it up with them and there was a, a process that they went through. So uh, that's what's going on here. Then, all, uh, let me read the, a little bit more. This is the ending verse that I want you to see. These men began to argue with Stephen, but they could not stand up against his wisdom or the spirit by whom he spoke. Remember, we had heard that before too. Then they secretly persuaded some men to say, we have heard Stephen speak words of blasphemy against Moses and against God. So they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law. They seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin. That's the governing body. They produced false witnesses who testified, this fellow never stopped speaking against the holy place and against the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs of Moses handed down to us. Now notice this, this is the verse in, in 15. All who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen and they saw that his face was like that of an angel. Isn't that interesting? So there's this debate and basically Stephen mops the floor with them and they don't like that. So what is it that you do in those cases? Well, the easiest thing to do is lie. Lie about, the, about your opponent. <clears throat> well, we must understand something. I don't think I can say, state this too strongly, and some of you have heard me say this before. Whenever Jesus enters the picture, there is a power struggle. There are established forms of power, and Jesus sets himself up against every single one. All of them. And I've, we're coming into an election year. I'm so excited. And what I want to remind people of is if you're a follower of Jesus, your allegiance is to him. And as far as I'm concerned, I don't care who's in the White House. My job has not changed. And I think we have to remind ourselves of the fact that Jesus, in order for us to maintain our prophetic voice in the world, our allegiance is to Jesus. Now, that doesn't mean that you don't vote. I'm not saying that at all. You should. You should vote your conscience. You should do all those things. But remember where your allegiance actually lies. And don't be surprised if Jesus calls you to something that might aggravate some people. Jesus pretty much aggravated both the right and the left. He just did. So, as we go into an election year, keep that in mind. But here we see this again. We see the words that Stephen is speaking about Jesus disrupting the power structures. This is not uncommon, and we see this throughout the text. Even in the letters of Paul. So keep this in mind. We have to understand there's a bigger power structure that's going on, in, going on here. But what's so beautiful about this, in the face of false accusations, Stephen's not upset. Did you notice that? He is neither anxious nor arrogant. He has a peaceful look on his face, like that of an angel. Fascinating. Because if people are accusing me of something false, I gotta be honest, claws come out. I'm ready to rumble. And that's not what's going on here. 
Stephen is confident because why? He's full of wisdom and the presence of God. Keep that in mind. It's an important um, bit of the story, I think. Now, what follows in chapter 7 is actually quite fascinating. I will not read it because uh, chapter 7, or chapter 7 verses 1 through 50 is one of the best summaries of the history of Israel. If you want to understand in a very succinct fashion what the history was of the Old Testament, read chapter 7 verses 1 through 50. It gives you a great picture of that. Beautiful summary of it. But here's the interesting thing, and this is what I want to point out, is that he does not sugarcoat it. He does not sugarcoat it at all, in fact. Verse 9 in particular, I'm going to read this to you because I want you to see this. Remember, history of Israel, this is the context. In verse 9, he's talking about Joseph and his brothers. Because the patriarchs were jealous of Joseph, they sold him as a slave into Egypt. Now, every Jew knows this. However, Stephen, why'd you bring that up, man? Nobody wants to remember that. We, we don't want to remember that it was jealousy that, that prompted all this, that they turned on. The, this is a shameful thing that they did. They turned on their brother, sold him into slavery, lied to their father about it. My goodness, Stephen, why would you bring that up? That's just mean. Oh, but he's not done. He's not done at all. In fact, if you go into uh, verse 39, a little bit later, we see another example. There's others. These are the ones that I I just pulled out. He's talking about Moses leading the people out, uh, leading the Israelites out of Egypt. Um, Verse 38, he was in the assembly in the desert with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai. This is Moses. And with our fathers, and he received living words to pass on to us. That's the Torah. That's the law. Seminal moment in the life of Israel. And what does Stephen say? But our fathers refused to obey him. Instead, they rejected him and in their hearts turned back to Egypt. Really, Stephen? I mean, now you're just rubbing their nose in it. You know, you're talking about jealousy, but now this is, oh, them's fighting words. You have taken the single... If we were to go into a Jewish synagogue today, there is a very good chance you would hear something about the Torah in Mount Sinai. And so, here's this group of religious... This is the Sanhedrin. This is the, the religious body in all of Judaism. And he's standing there reminding them that Israel blew it a couple of times. Badly. Nasty. I mean, this is ugly stuff. And here he is talking to them. Stephen, what are you doing? Why would you do that? It's rough. Why did you point that one out? And so then, he finishes speech. This is so funny. He goes, you stiff-necked people. Which, by the way, that's the words that uh, Moses used. You stiff-necked people. Your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised. Okay, Uh, that's a loaded term. You are just like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one, and now you have betrayed and murdered him. Meaning Jesus, you who have received the law that was given through angels, but have not obeyed it. And here's, here's his point. If our... 
if I'm going to summarize what Stephen is saying, he's going, you're still blowing it. How many of you would like to hear somebody tell you that? Right? I mean, this cuts right to the heart of it. He's like, your history is riddled with this nonsense, and guess what? You're perpetuating it. You're still dealing with that same stuff. Rubs it in just a little bit, I think. You're still missing what God wants. And maybe you know the story, but in verse 54 to verse 60, Stephen is stoned to death. Interesting, though, that's an illegal execution because in Israel at the time, only Rome could execute someone. And here they are, stoning this man illegally. That's how angry they were. He had pushed several buttons, would you agree? Yeah, he did. Several of these. So I want to offer a couple of thoughts on the story. Because um, Stephen, who's the first martyr, um, is killed here. No, by the way, right at the end of this, um, verse 53 or so, it says that before they stoned Stephen, the people of the synagogue put their cloaks at the feet of a man named Saul, who later became Paul. Saul was an expat. He was from a place called Tarsus, which was away from Jerusalem, and studying there. And as he did that, he probably attended that particular synagogue because that's where all the expats went. Make sense? So Saul is introduced to Christianity in a relatively violent fashion. And his story picks up in a little while. So let me offer some thoughts on this. The one that I find very interesting is very early on in verse 8 of, cha- of chapter 7. Um, or actually chapter 6. But we have Stephen who's introduced to us with this group of seven people who are supposed to be on the food team. Right? Food distribution team. They're on the hospitality crew. That's what they're on. <laughs> He's picked for that. And yet, in chapter 7, verse 1, it says that he was full of God God's grace and his wisdom and his power, those things. And he's performing what? Signs and wonders. Wait a minute, I thought he was supposed to be distributing, distributing food. That seems strange to me, that he has an assignment. In fact, one of the things that we know is that this idea of distribution of food falls under a, a particular uh, title. Later on, it's called deacon. And so he's a deacon, and yet he's doing what the, what the apostles are doing too. He's performing signs and wonders. This seems a little bit odd to me, which reminds me of the whole point we talked about earlier. Do not confuse your assignment with your calling. His assignment was deacon. His calling was to be in the presence of God. And then God would direct his other assignments. Now, was he still dis- um, in the process of of food distribution? Of course he was. But he was also performing signs and wonders. Why? Because he was full of God's presence. Do you see that? Don't confuse your assignment with your calling. Your assignment is at the top of the pyramid. Your calling is at the bottom of that triangle. 
And one of the things that you receive when you're with God is the anointing to actually do what he's assigned you to do. Now, the people assigned him to the food team. God assigned him to signs and wonders. Do you see this? It's both and, not either or. But don't confuse the assignment with the calling. I think it's pretty important. He's full of grace and power. He's full of the presence of God. Here's the other point that I want to make. Look what the presence of God, the calling part of the triangle, um, meant to Stephen. First thing was, as we said, signs and wonders among those people. And so the thing that I want you to understand for, for Stephen is that God's presence is his power. When God is present, present in your life, there's power. Now, so far, and probably the last six or nine months, I've witnessed this, I don't know how many times, I haven't counted. But I've witnessed God speaking to myself and to other people in very powerful ways because we're chasing after the presence of God. And I personally think that God can't help it. I think God wants to do things. You've heard me say this before. That's a fundamental assumption that I make, that God is still active in the world today and he actually wants to do something. Now, I don't know what that is. I don't claim to know what that is. So I'm going to ask, right? Let's find out. God, what, what do you have in mind today? Before every service, we pray. And we, we say a couple of things. First of all, God, there's more than two of us and we're declaring that we're gathered in your name so we know by your word you're here. You're the head of the church. We're just associates. What do you want to do? So far, he's just kind of let us do our thing that we normally do, which is really nice. But the point is, is that we want to make sure that we understand that calling the presence of God is most important. Why? Because I don't want three bucks worth of God. And I want $3 Jesus. Eternity in a paper sack? Oh man, that's good. Wish I would have thought of that. That's a good one. So the presence of God is the power of God. Have to keep that in mind. The other thing um, that I think it meant to, to Stephen, at least in that, those 50 verses, is that there's some clear communication. Brilliant and truthful summary of Israel's history and so oftentimes the presence of God restores things. Now, I'm using that word deliberately. I'm not talking about restore, I'm talking about restory. And uh, I mentioned this several times in the past, but often what happens is that you and I will experience things in our life, both positive and negative, and we interpret them. We interpret them in a certain way. It is human nature to do so. But very often, that story that you're writing for yourself, God is writing another story in the margins. That's the story I'm interested in. Yes, there's this great history of the Jews. Yes, it is through them that Jesus came. But there's also a re-story. You're still living out the part that's keeping you from all that God has in mind. Stephen. So Stephen has restoried this, but the same thing is true for you and me. God will often give us another interpretation of events. And this is hard. This is a difficult thing to understand. 
but I think that it's important that we, we think about it. You know that job that you lost? Might be God. That relationship that's coming to an end, whatever it is, might be God. That thing that you're wrestling with so deeply in your heart, you might be wrestling with God. Now that doesn't make everything hunky-dory and roses and God isn't, isn't the magic wand. I'm not suggesting that at all. All I'm saying is there may be another angle on this. So the presence of God often restores those deep places of hurt in our own lives. And I'll just say this out loud. I'll just be transparent about it. It's still happening to me. Probably the last couple of weeks, I've had some significant events that I remember in my life very painfully. God's slowly beginning to show me an alternate side to it. I'm very grateful for that. Here's a third one. This is what I think the presence of God, this calling means to Stephen. I think that it gave him insight beyond his circumstance. Because one of the things we learn about in the text is just before he's stoned to death, he looks up into heaven and he sees Jesus. Very similar to this idea of restoring. But the present often, presence of God often expands our view. It often helps us to see beyond what's just going on here. So that when something negative comes up, my first response isn't get angry and get all upset or get anxious or try to fix the problem, but just to calmly say, what if this is God trying to work out something here? Now, I'm not that mature all the time. (laughs) And neither are you. (laughs) But the point is, is that if you're living in the bottom of the triangle, what you're attempting to do is slow down so that you can hear the voice of God. Now, how many of you, when um, you're in the midst of something, maybe it's an argument, maybe there's something uncomfortable going on in your life, you tend to get con- uh, tunnel vision and time begins to speed up. Has that ever happened to you? When you slow down and you allow yourself to be in the presence of God, you get some different perspective. It's like, oh, maybe there's something more going on. And if you don't get it right the first time, that's okay. God is in this with you. Slow down so you can hear the voice of God. Allow him to restore it. Allow it to expand your view. So again, delays that you experience, losing a job, an ending relationship, whatever those things happen to be, That might be God at work. Slow down so that you can hear him. Live in the bottom of the triangle. And the final point that I want to make, thought that I want to observe, and this seems to be a theme that keeps coming up in the book of Acts. The presence of God isn't always safe. Now, that doesn't mean that you're going to be martyred, <laughs> okay? Stephen being the first martyr for Jesus. doesn't mean you're going to be martyred. But what I think it does is it underscores this is serious business following Jesus. That's not a guilt thing. That's not a warning. I just think it's serious. But sometimes being in the presence of God isn't safe. 
you might have to deal with some of your own stuff first. Then you may have to deal with stuff with other people. Ooh, that's fun. But the point is, this is for your, for your good. C.S. Lewis, he's not safe, but he's good. And that's the part you have to trust. I'm trusting that the Lord is good. God, I know I've got to go through this. I don't really want to do this. This is not fun. This is not comfortable. Ah. But I'm trusting that you're good and that something good is going to come out of all of this. Which, I would argue, is why we need more of his presence. Why we need to chase after the presence of God because I know he's good, but I need the strength to get through it. I need the power to get through it. I need the expanded view. I need to know this too can be restoried. That we can make this thing count. And that's what I think Stephen tells us. Now, there's probably a whole bunch of other stuff in this text, too, that we could drill down on, but I can't not see the presence of God anymore being this engine that drives what these disciples are doing. These are rednecks, uneducated, don't know what they're doing, making it up as they go along, building the plane as they're trying to fly it. That's exactly what's going on here. And yet this engine of the Spirit is constantly there. It's the presence of God that does that. So last week, I made the comment. And I said, look, if you don't do the theme for a year, fine. My challenge to you is, what will you do? What, what will you do? Because I don't think, at least for me, I'm not sure that I find it acceptable just to be passive about this anymore. I can't. I read what happens in the text, and I look at what happens in my own life, and there's a big gap between the two, and that's no longer acceptable to me. If, if the kingdom of God is as powerful and as rich and as beautiful and as Life-changing as the text makes it out to be, why is that not happening right here, right now? So what am I going to do? Well, I'm going to start by chasing after the presence, living in the bottom part of that triangle, doing what I can. So I would encourage all of you to do the same. Double dog dare you. What will you do? What will you do to chase after him?